If I'm listening to somebody, I want to make sure that they've actually done the thing that they're giving me advice on. I've seen founders make bad decisions on lawyers, launch dates, products, or on tech, or on hiring because they've listened to the wrong person. The Startup Sensations Podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond. With Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Bulent Osman, from just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, once again on the beautiful Northern California coast. Lucky you. Hello. Hi, Bulent. And today we have a great guest. Uh, I've known Matt Johns for a number of years, and he's a really interesting character. He's a founder, he's an investor. And he's created a company called Founder and Lightning. And this particular business invests in very early stage startup businesses here in here in the UK, uh, but with a twist. He is going to be different than a number of the other interviewees that we've spoken with because his company helps startups, but he's also a startup in some ways. I mean, he also went through that. So, you know, he's he's wearing a number of hats and it's going to be fascinating to hear his thoughts and opinions on uh, all of those topics. And I'm delighted to say that Matt Johns now joins us from London. Matt, lovely to see you. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. But um, thank you for having me. But um, thank you for having me, Shelley. Nice to see you. Well, Matt, uh, we uh, appreciate your time today and joining the show. Um, I'd like to kick off really with uh, asking you about your company, the one that you founded called Founder and Lightning. We know it's an important investment tool for a lot of uh, startups here in the UK. Can you share uh, details about what you do, how you do it, and why you founded the company? So I run a company called Founder and Lightning. Uh, we are a venture studio with about 100, 120, 130 people now in the company. That's made up of product managers, designers, engineers. And essentially, we partner mainly with non-technical founders, so founders who don't code, uh, to build out their tech companies. And we do that in a number of ways, um, depending on the stage that they're at. Um, if they're really early stage, so if they uh, don't have a product yet, we do that for our venture studio. Uh, and if they're slightly later stage, we do that through our new fund that we set up last year called Founder and Lightning Capital. So we've probably built now over the last uh, seven, eight years, must be 40, 42 companies, about eight of those in the last year. And it's all around trying to mitigate risk. You know, when you're building a tech company, obviously one of the riskiest things that you can do as a founder, as a investor. Uh, and what we're really trying to do is take all of our learnings over the last few years and, and put that into the process that we work with with founders really to mitigate risk. So what would you say is the thesis behind your investment strategy? How, how are you different from other investors? So I would say that we are slightly esoteric in what we look for. I guess the number one thing is we're not looking for unicorns, which actually um, has become now fashionable post, obviously, the whole VC crash. But we were doing that, you know, way before it was fashionable. So even in the crazy days of 2020 and 2021, we we still weren't looking for unicorns. Now, we're not going to argue if one comes along, but far too many tech companies fail. And it's typically for the same reason over and over and over, you know, wrong timing, wrong team. No validation, i.e. the founders solving a problem that just doesn't exist. We're all about essentially building 
we call them sustainable companies. So not in an environmental sense, but in a business sense. We are really looking to invest in and build companies that have the potential to sell for tens of millions rather than hundreds of millions. And our whole thesis around that is that it's less risky. So what we really like to do is we like to go into a company that is analog, so is offline, has already proven some some kind of product market fit, but doesn't have any tech yet. And then we digitize them. Because the hardest thing when you're building a tech company is obviously getting to this magic product market fit, um, which essentially means revenue, which is really hard to do. You know, it's really difficult to do. It's where a lot of companies fail. They they think they spot a problem. They think they've got a use case that's going to serve their customer base. And they go and spend a ton of money building some technology and they launch it and it just doesn't get the traction that they think it's going to get. So we're kind of coming at it from the other way. You know, we're we're a bunch of product managers, technologists, you know, strategists. We think if you can take uh, an analog company, so a non-tech company that's already got the love of their customers, it's already got a version of product market fit, just not a tech product market fit yet. And then we digitize them. So that's 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 the thing that I think makes us different to what's out there. And then the type of founders that we go after. So we're obviously the, we're the techies, we're the product managers. We actually target non-technical founders who are domain experts who are commercial, who are clearly very competent in terms of business. And then we slot in our product and tech teams to help them with the with with that side of things. And what size of company do you do you typically go after? What what, what sort of check size do you normally invest? So for founder and lightning capital, which is where we invest, we will typically put somewhere between 150 and 300 K into the business. And then we'll look to follow on after about six months. A portion of that, those funds are actually redeployed with our venture studio. You know, because we've got 100 odd people to pay for, which is quite expensive. And in terms of the size of company, we'd like to there to be at least a minimum of 10K a month of MRR. We've done bigger and we've done smaller. And look, I guess it can be relatively arbitrary, right? But for us, we're looking to come in at a stage where we know that there is a real need for that service that they're offering. And then we know that between us and the founders, we can digitize that and turn that into a into a product that's not going to then struggle to get deployment or adoption. Sector-wise, are you fairly agnostic sector-wise? Because there are some sectors I would imagine that are tougher than others. So how do you how do you analyze that? So we are, are completely sector agnostic. Uh, our main common strand is that we always B2B. Mm-hmm. Okay. We will not invest into a B2C business because I use that word mitigation of risk again. Uh, we just think that's it's very hard. It's risky. It's expensive. It's hard to acquire the customers. Um, and it's just not our main expertise. Now, through our venture studio, where founders just raise their own uh, funding and they use us, we have done some B2C businesses, but it's not what we invest into. But we've done all sorts of different domains, all sorts of different industries. The thing that really... Um, you know, is the commonality is the fact that it should be a relatively analog business in an archaic industry. And the founder is pretty much always non-technical domain expert. They know their industry inside out and they're good commercially. That's the thing that, that kind of links everything together. Have you seen any shift in what kinds of issues people are trying to address? What kinds of companies? I think one reason why we are why we are looking at going after existing companies is because a big shift I've seen over the last few years is with the rise of um, you know no code and software development becoming cheaper it's it's kind of easier than ever to launch something into the enterprise space you know to think you've got an idea think you've spotted something and then launch it but with the rise of these types of tools that are out there big enterprises can now build their own internal software so I think it's easier than ever to start something 
but it's potentially harder than ever to you know scale something and it's so cluttered out there the b2b SaaS ecosystem that it can be quite hard to cut through so we've seen a massive rise of people wanting to build b2b software but it's not necessarily if i think it's becoming harder to scale easier to start so that's why we've we've kind of moved a little bit in that we're going after real businesses they're not necessarily always software you know it's it's they're real businesses that we can digitize because those real businesses they're never going to go away you know and there's this massive opportunity where there's some great businesses out there and they just still are not digitized so that that's that's going to be our main focus over the next few years what do you look for in a founder then in in a founding team uh, you have a very sp- specific set of criteria for what you look for in a in a business model but what about the actual personal characteristics of the people that you invest in we want them to be humble but confident you know so we want them clearly to be competent we want them clearly to be you know we don't want to run the business for them we're just the tech and the product side but we also want them to to demonstrate to us that they're going to listen you know so we've had to pull out of deals before where you know we start talking to a founder we really like the business we really like them at the start but you can tell very quickly that they're not going to take on board our our software and product expertise. You know, there's a certain way of building product, and there's, and there's as I said, there's certain things that come up and the reasons why startups fail. And we know that, and we've been doing that for almost a decade. So if the founder is clearly not going to listen, that that's a big red flag for us. We're looking to see how quickly they have developed their business in the time and the the resources that were available to them, you know? So if somebody's got to 10K a month of revenue and they've done it over two years, that might not on the surface sound that impressive, but it could be that they did a year of that part-time whilst doing another job. Or, you know, they have had raised no funding at all and they've done it completely bootstrapped. So we're very uh, cognizant of of how much, how have they demonstrated progress and the time and resources that they've had. That's very important for us as well. And then, I would say finally, the domain expertise, they either should be an expert in their field or they should have been doing that business long enough so they've become an expert in the field because that's what we don't have. You know, Because we're sector agnostic, we're looking at all these different types of industries. We need to lean on the founder for those domain expertise. And actually, sorry, the final one is naturally commercial. If a founder can't sell and clearly they can't sell, then we don't think the business has got you know, legs. So we're looking, they don't have to be trained salespeople, but they have to have demonstrated that they can sell to investors, they can sell to customers, and ultimately eventually sell to their team and, you know, paint a vision of what they're trying to build. What are some of the uh, mistakes that founders make then when they approach you, you know, perhaps you've agreed to a meeting and and then they kind of blow off course and make a few mistakes and you end up moving elsewhere? None of this is rocket science. This is all information that you can get very easily as founders. But I still see founders make these same very basic, simple mistakes over and over and over. And really, I think it is problem validation, timing, wrong team and funding. I think problem validation is is the founder getting fixated and hooked on building a certain solution that they've got in their head. They don't do the work to make sure that the problem that they're solving actually exists. And it's a massive cliche, but, and I know some people don't like this cliche, but the falling in love with the problem, not the solution, is such an important thing for founders to to grasp because the amount of founders I talk to that they come to, they come to me and they say, I've got this great idea. This is what it's going to look like. It's going to, you know, it's going to do this. It's going to be for these people. Have you spoken to any users yet? No. That consistently is where is where founders seem to make 
the same mistakes over and over and over. Yeah. And very briefly, wrong team, you know, so you, you build it in the wrong way. You go to an agency that does it wrong. You get a co-founder, a tech co-founder that, you know, you give 50% of the company to and ends up not being very good. That is something that, that often goes wrong. So the kinds of companies you take on, typically, how long do you work with a company? Um, how do you, when the project, if I can call it that, is done, are you still an integral part of the company? Or how does, how does all that work, relationship stuff work, I guess? So our internal mantra is products, not projects. We don't want to be seen as a an outsourced software provider to these founders where, you know, we're an integrated, integral part of their team. And that's how we set things up. So essentially, when a founder works with us, they get a startup squad. So typically, that's product manager, designer, some developers, QA, access to our senior team. And they will work with them like they're an extension of their team. Where I see a lot of founders go wrong is they go and work with an agency. They think, oh, I must give them a big, long scope because I know exactly what is in my head. I know exactly what I need. And you're already, I mean, if you start doing that, the startup has basically failed before it's even started, <laughs> you know? So we try to set things up as if that founder on day one is hiring a, you know, a startup team in-house. So it should be like an in-house team rather than an external team. In terms of how long we typically work with them, I mean, some of them we've been working with for the last five or six years. And then over time, they might start to take some things in-house. They might take their product manager. Um, they might take their product function in-house. They then might start taking some senior developers in-house, not from us. They might, they'll hire them. We can help them do that. We help them do interviews. I think as the founder, you want to get the intellectual ownership in-house as quickly as possible. Key product decisions. And it could be after two years, something like that, that, that might make sense to start, to start doing that. So, so Matt, I'm curious, putting yourself in the role of a founder, how did you identify this problem and how did you decide that this was going to be the solution? Okay, so I'm a I'm a non-techie. I can't code. Uh, I took over my family business when I was pretty young. It was an offline musical instrument retailer. Um, so I dropped out of university after a few weeks to take that over. Uh, made a ton of mistakes, made all the mistakes you can kind of make, I guess, really. Um, but my strategy there was to digitize it. So we, we renamed it and we moved it as an offline analog retailer to an online retailer. Built a load of custom technology. We had logistics um, system and as a non-techie obviously I made a ton of mistakes but then after a few years had kind of worked out what I was doing and people were coming to me and saying oh you know I've got this business or I've got this idea can you help me digitize it can you help me turn it into a, a real business and that's how that's how Founder and Lightning was born and I think because I come at it with a non-engineering background we've always set the business up in a way where trying to avoid pseudo jargon, trying to avoid making things too complex for the sake of it. And now we have a WhatsApp group, which is called Founders Who Don't Code, which is 100 odd founders who are on there, all sharing their stories about, you know, this has gone wrong with this software house, this has gone wrong with this co-founder. Like I say, it's almost easier than ever to start something, right? There's no code. There's, in in theory, software development has, has, has gone down, but in, in price and, and time. But there's still a lot of things that can go wrong. So if we can help founders to, you know, navigate those early days, then, then great. Did you go into it thinking it was going to be this and it's emerged as something a little different? Do you know what? I mean, actually, interestingly, I mean, I always wanted to start a fund. Uh, our business model 
um, to start with for the first few years was we discounted our fees in return for equity. And we did that 30 something times. The plan was always to raise a fund so that we can directly invest uh, and we can hang our hat on our thesis on the exact type of founder, exact type of companies that we want to build. But to be honest with you, it's a very similar business to what we started. We still work with founders with non-engineering backgrounds. It's still the same reasons why startups fail that we're trying to mitigate. And it's always been about taking relatively archaic or analog industries and trying to digitize them. So I think the, the sort of North Star vision of the company hasn't changed. I mean, lots of other things have changed how, how you get there. <laughs> but I think it's more or less, it's a very similar business to what, to what we started on day one. So what's it like for you being a founder and CEO of a fund? I mean, just just at a personal level, what are the kind of uh, frustrations and aspirations that you have? I guess if you're raising investment and you're deploying it, the three things that are difficult are raising the money, deal flow and fund structure. You know, I've actually quite a few sort of up and coming fund managers come to me recently, have seen or who, who either know me or have seen what we're doing and asking for advice on it. You know, they're doing maybe doing some deals through a little syndicate that they've created and they want to professionalize it. The fund structure bit is the bit I really didn't expect to be as hard as it was. And I thought finding the money, raising the money would be the hardest. I thought finding the deals and the fund structure would be pretty easy. And finding the deals and the fund structure was difficult. We're now in a really good spot with deal flow um, over the last sort of six months, but it was a bit slower than I wanted it to be to, uh, to start with. But, you know, if you're in America, it's much easier just to raise some money, go and deploy it. Regulations are lighter. The appetite for risk is higher. The sort of FCA regulations over here are more difficult. We've, we've now recently just found a partner. So for our uh, the, the, the next investment that we're raising, it's going to be structured as a regulated fund, which makes things so much easier for us in how we deploy and, and how we raise money and the type of investors that we can bring on. Do you look at companies internationally or are you UK focused? We are UK focused uh, because our investors either are or will be EIS uh, investors. So the tax breaks are important. Okay. You can have international companies that have a UK base for, uh, you know, for the EIS purposes. So that wouldn't necessarily rule it out. For us, I think the interaction between the founder and our team is so important. We're not ruling it out. We just haven't done it yet. The founders that we're working with and our team, they're working, you know, face to face one or two times a week. And that's been quite important. It's been important to us in the DD process to get to know the founder. I think that would be harder to do on Zoom. I know a lot of investors probably slightly regret making certain decisions over COVID on Zoom. <laughs> I find it's very difficult to read someone and you know really get to know them. We will explore it, but but so far it hasn't it hasn't happened for those reasons. Can we do a bit of a deep dive into deal flow, the, the whole concept of deal flow? To the outside world, it seems like an easy problem to solve because there must be so many people out there, so many founders and businesses who are desperate for cash, frankly. And if you're offering some of that, why wouldn't they want to sort of knock on your door right. and want to speak with you? So from your point of view, what, why was it more challenging and how have you solved that problem? Deal flow isn't necessarily the challenge. It's quality deal flow is the challenge. You put a big sign up saying we've got investment, you get a ton of applications. You know, in the last year, we think we've had over 600 applications and we've invested into seven. So you can imagine the work that goes into to screen those. Quantity is not necessarily the problem, it's quality. And I know that's the case for all the VCs that I talk to, a lot of angels that I talk to. It's easier than ever to start something. There's a higher quantity coming onto the market 
but I still think I think it's harder than ever to scale something. The reason I think it's particularly challenging for us is because our thesis is so niche. Um, so we are looking for some for a founder that is at the perfect stage. They need to not really have a tech team yet because we are that, but they also need to not be pre-product because we're de-risking the investment for our LPs uh, and also for ourselves. So we want some early traction. So we're looking and then it needs to be ideally a digitization opportunity, ideally a proper business. The founder needs to be, you know, non-engineering background. They need to be good commercially. They need to be humble yet confident. So we've got this big list of stuff because we're so niche in what we're looking for. I think it exacerbates the challenge, but it's a problem around the entire ecosystem. In terms of how we solved it, lots of content on LinkedIn, being very specific about what we're looking for and our point of view. It's a bit different to what's out there, but we're very, very clear and very specific on what it is that we like. Events, networking, partnerships, and doing that stuff day in, day out over a few months to get to a point where suddenly there was a tipping point and actually the 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 deal flow that we we're getting is really strong. And that was probably about six, seven months ago that I was really starting to get very happy with the deal flow. I'm intrigued to know about the young Matt John. So if you want to go back now in time to, I don't know, when you were a teenager at school, perhaps, what were you like at that time? And, and what was the formative thinking that has led you on this sort of career path? I think I was probably a bit of a nightmare, to be honest with you. <laughs> I found the structure of school quite boring. Like I loved certain subjects like drama and stuff like that. But being like locked in a room for an hour being spoken at by a teacher was my worst nightmare. So I struggled a bit with that. I always kind of wanted to be in business. My dad had started his business when I was like born, I think, around then. So it must have been super stressful. But I liked that. I liked that idea. So I was reading all the biographies and stuff, all the cliches that you can imagine, reading all the biographies, young, all that kind of stuff. But I always wanted to do that. I don't really know why. I just like the idea of, I guess, of being in control of your own destiny and you know, if you mess up, it's on you. It's not on somebody else. Boys quite like that accountability um, and knowing that if I was to succeed or fail, it's it's ultimately on me. There are lots and lots and lots of companies out there today. And I agree with you. And you used a good word that that rings true to me, which is clutter. But stepping back from that, how have you seen the ecosystem change? Because it is changing. It has changed. And it is different today. So setting aside the clutter, <laughs> what are the positive things? The, the ecosystem is really strong, I think. In the UK, the EIS and SEIS tax breaks are have been massive to allow essentially retail investors, you know, who are happy to take a bit of a punt every year. And I just don't think a lot of companies would get funded in the way that they do without that ecosystem. So I think you've got France now that are looking to replicate what we've done uh, with SEIS and EIS. don't know how great it is for the exchequer in terms of these companies that are exiting and no one's paying any tax on, the, on those exits. So um, I don't know whether that's going to end up slightly changing. But for, in terms of the ecosystem, I think it's, it's massive. You know, if you've got a good business and you do some good networking, you should be able to raise money. I think if you don't, it's on you as the founder. And then there's money coming in from more diverse forms now and, and backing not just people that have got a great network. There's there's really good sort of syndicates and funds that are going to be less bothered where you've come from and uh, and all that kind of stuff. So I think I think the opportunity is enormous. Like I said before, I think the ability to start something so cheaply now is massive. Where where technology is changing, so that's great. And then and then 
the clutter is 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 the hard thing to cut through. You just have to make sure that you've got a painkiller, not a vitamin, another cliche, but too many people start something and it's a nice to have. And I think those businesses are just not going to get the traction that they need anymore. Maybe they would have in 2020 and 2021, but I don't think they're going to now. You know, the other thing I've noticed about the ecosystem is there are incubators and accelerators and, um, you know, a whole infrastructure that didn't used to exist. So it's kind of like the whole business of startup has become now accepted and mature and appreciated. And, you know, that's a whole shot in the arm for the ecosystem. Yeah, I think accelerators and incubators, there's, um, there's positives and negatives to them. There's a lot of really bad ones. To be honest with you, that in what way? Tell tell me about that. Well, they, I think they get government funding, taxpayers' money, and I don't think the value they add to founders is as strong as it should. I think it's more potentially some of its selection because there's maybe some box ticking there. We have to get X amount of people through because that's what we promised the local authority or the government or whatever. But then I've been to some of these accelerators, you know, either as a you know as a guest or as a mentor or whatever, and I think some of them are, are not great, you know, so there's more money around for that kind of stuff. Is it being deployed in the right way? Sometimes, yes. You know, obviously there's some amazing ones, but as a founder, you just have to be very careful that you don't give equity away to, you know, an accelerator that offers you zero value or onerous terms that then doesn't allow you to raise money further down the line. So I think you've got to be wary as a founder and not and really do your research before you before you join some of these. I mean, the best content, I think, is still the YC Startup School stuff. It's like five years old. And a lot of that stuff is is still better than a lot of the accelerator stuff that I've seen. So if you're a founder, just go on. It's all free. Go on to you know, YC Startup School. Watch all those videos. And as you're building out your business, keep going back to those videos. And I agree, you're, you're way more likely to succeed. You talk about um, uh, picking the right founders who are willing to listen you know, uh, to make sure that they are actually coachable. What's your view in terms of having a mentor associated with each founder? What, you know, the whole concept of mentorship, uh, what's your view on that? And to what extent do you deploy that within your portfolio businesses? It's something that we, we want to get better at. So what we're hoping is that for our, the next fundraiser that we are, are raising for, we're hoping to have a number of our LPs that might want to either for additional incentive or just for the love of working with startups and protecting their investment and probably growing their investment to give some of their time to our portfolio companies. That's something that we're really keen to do. Obviously, we'll be able to vet them, those investors, you know, and make sure that they're they're really strong. In general, yet again, I think I go back to the same point I made on, on the accelerators. Yes, in theory, but have to be very careful that, you know, the mentor actually knows what they're talking about. I've often found even really great mentors of mine, 50% of what they say is, uh, not applicable, and that's probably the nicest way of saying it, to my business. So the question is, how how do you as the founder know what 50% to listen to? Everyone can give out advice with the best intentions, but is it right for that founder? I've seen founders make bad decisions on lawyers or on launch dates or on products or on tech or on hiring because they've listened to somebody and they've listened to the wrong person. So my advice to founders is always, if I'm listening to somebody, I want to make sure that they've actually done the thing that they're giving me advice on. And a really good example of that is I've seen founders take technical advice from extremely experienced uh, CTOs who have never worked in a startup before. They might be a, a really big company on the, you know, on the stock exchange, 30 years experience. So in theory, that sounds great, doesn't it? 
but they've never worked from a startup. They've got no idea the speed that you need to deploy, the corners that you have to cut, you know, the culture that they've got, the type of people you need to hire. So I always say just make sure they've done a version of what you're actually getting advice on. Otherwise, you know, they're probably just giving you their best guess. Yeah, no, that's excellent advice. You made a point before about networks. You know, just validate, get, just, just get in information, you know, test what uh, you're being told with other people as well. Yeah, and also don't be afraid to not, you know, not listen, go with your gut. Some of the worst mistakes I've made is when I've, when I've not gone with my gut. I've taken advice and, I, and in hindsight, that, that was bad advice like I say, meant in the best possible way, but wasn't right for me or, or, or our business. Yeah, it's balance, isn't it? Because it's it's go with your gut, but also listen. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It is. Nobody said this was easy. No, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And looking forward, Matt, um, what's the future looking like? I mean, obviously now there's a, there's the advent of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and it's all this extra technology coming through. Um the pace of innovation seems to have increased, if anything, in recent years. Uh, what what impact is all this going to have to the startup ecosystem? I'm an eternal optimist, so I think it will be a net positive. Uh, and maybe it's too too much of a simple analysis, but if you look throughout history, whenever there's been innovation, it's actually been good, right, for the economy and for growth. And ultimately, it's been good for the workforce. Um, I'm sure there's people way smarter than me that would disagree with me. But in terms of our business, the pace of innovation is fantastic for us because we can take these archaic, good, solid businesses that have got no tech and we can wrap even more um, incredible technology on top of them. You know, so AI is going to play a huge part in all the companies that we're building over the next five years in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do five five years ago. So our thesis of taking a, a solid business that's already doing revenue, that's already got customers that's love it and then wrapping technology around it it's going to be great for us so i see it as only a positive so on that point matt what's the best way for people to get in touch with you then um okay so if you are either a non-technical founder so someone that doesn't code who has an existing business that you want to digitize or if you have an early mvp that's got early traction that you need a tech team to scale with then either go to our website founderandlightning.com Uh, and get in touch that way, or feel free to DM me on LinkedIn. We thank you for your time. Thank you to you both. Thank you very much. Really super interesting, Matt. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, Shelley, I really enjoyed seeing Matt again. Uh, I thought it was a great conversation. He's full of ideas, full of energy, and he's got a slightly different thesis, hasn't he, to the other investors that we've spoken to in season one and season two of the show? Yeah, I thought it was a very motivating discussion, lots of information. He talked it first and foremost about the importance of mitigating risk. And that's really what his fund and his company are doing today, are looking to do today. And he, he said very bluntly, we're not looking for unicorns. We are looking for analog companies. And I loved what he said. He said, companies where they already have the love of their customers and what they need now is to apply technology in a way that will really jumpstart or continue to to scale the company. So that was a unique take on things to me. Yeah. Do you remember the part we asked him about what are the things that they look for in founders? Because this is really the acid test, right? And he talked about founders needing to be 
humble. Yep. They, they look for people who listen. They're obviously decision makers, but they are open to other information. They take a look at how the business has developed, which I thought was also something different that I hadn't heard before. We talked about, you know, looking at the, how the company has developed to date and what factors influenced it. And does that mean they, they really scaled rapidly or were there some tremendous bumps along the road and how did they handle them? And then domain expertise, of course, and selling the company and, and pitching the company. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the reason why he's so thorough with his list of requirements and looking for red flags is because he said right at the beginning that too many tech companies fail. And he said that they always fail for mostly the same reasons. It's either wrong timing, the wrong team, or the wrong product validation. In other words, companies fall in love really with their solution rather than really being very, very clear about what the problem is and, and how that solution solves that problem. And uh, th this issue of timing is not often talked about, but it's, it is actually in a recent survey one of the top reasons why companies do fail because it's the wrong product at the wrong time or, or possibly the right product. At the wrong time. Yeah. And uh, he, he also uh, clarified a bit more about product validation and that founders don't spend enough time validating the product, which is why he's looking for analog businesses that have got some level of traction. Well, you know, I think part of that may also be a reflection of his background. You know, he talked about how he really wasn't a, an academic, but he was part of his parents' retail music business, which was very analog business, and how he took that over and grew it in part by adding technology, making things more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. And I had to think there were people along the way that he probably used as, I'm going to use the word mentors. No, he spoke about mentors, didn't he? In fact, he, he made a point that mentors are really important and a great support structure for founders going through the journey, especially first-time founders or young founders, that they need a, a, perhaps a wise old head. And mentors need to have really kind of been there and done it. And they need to speak and advise from a point of experience, i.e. they've done something similar and maybe they've learned from mistakes that they may have made or, you know, things that have gone right. And in general, certainly here in the UK, uh, there is a huge opportunity for the founders to look for, seek and work with an experienced mentor. <laughs> We're ending on a high note, huh, Belent? This is the last episode of season two. Yeah, absolutely. So th this is now uh, episode 12 of season two. Now we've got a short break for the Christmas New Year period, but we're definitely back in January 2024 with season three. And so I encourage all of our listeners to follow the show so that you receive a notification when the first episode of season three is released because we already have lined up some amazing guests. And so, you know, we look forward to seeing everyone in season three and we wish all of our listeners a happy new year for 2024. Yes, we do. And I think that our listeners and their friends and colleagues need to give themselves uh, some presents and go back in and listen to some of the earlier episodes. Absolutely. 
Well, look, it's been, it's been fun, Shelley, and I wish you uh, all the best for the uh, festive season and looking forward to uh, season three with you in January of 2024. Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favourite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations podcast.